Good morning, everyone. My name is Mark, and most of the time you, you would be hearing from Peter or Brad um, on a Sunday morning. Um, Peter is on vacation for the next couple weeks in California. We're thankful that he has that opportunity to, to be away and spend some time with some family that he has out in California. Um, so that um, means the assignment for preaching falls on me this morning. And um, I covet your prayers, as, as always, um, the, that the instrument would not get in the way of the message. So um, let's begin um, this morning now. Uh, let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, when we think that you, your Son, not sparing, sent him to die, we cannot take it in. That on the cross, our burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin then sings our soul, then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. Do not let this man get in the way of the greatness of who you are as we read and study your word, as we consider the words of David, your servant, the sinner who also needed the blood of Jesus. Teach us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> We're continuing our study uh, through the book of the Psalms, um, the songbook of Israel, the songbook of David, songbook of Jesus when he was a boy. And as we've studied already, and as it's been mentioned, um, the, the book of Psalms is kind of in the middle of the Bible. If you open it up in the middle, it's probably going to fall open to one of the Psalms. But it points backwards, referring to the faithfulness of God and his dealings with Israel before the Psalms. And it points forward to the coming Redeemer that will come after the Psalms. And so as it, it sits in the center gives us great opportunity to look back and to look forward. I hope we can do that this morning. Um, the, the psalm that we're going to read is, is um, one where uh, David is pouring out his heart. It's a song where he is uh, feeling like he's under attack, like he has enemies. And if, if we're a student of the Bible, David's life is an open book to us. We get to see all kinds of things about David, the good, the bad, and the ugly. He, he certainly was a, a diverse person. Um, we know he started out as a shepherd, and he was the youngest of six boys of Jesse, and he was called to be king even though he was the youngest. And um, in, in that calling, he was surprised and remained humble, but the king that was in, 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 the, in the throne, on the throne at that time, was Saul and didn't want to be replaced. But we could think, well, these words could be applied to um, his probably his most famous enemy, which was a giant, from, uh, a Philistine giant named Goliath. And so David could be using these words in that 
account. The Philistines numbered in, in the thousands as they were ready for battle against Israel, and David went there, and he could have quoted this at that time. But we know more than just the author of the psalm. We know that David wrote it, but we know the occasion of his writing it. And the occasion of it is, is told to us at the, the title of the psalm, when he fled from Absalom his son. And so I want to briefly just preview the psalm with just a, a recap of the history of, of David's life uh, up till this point. And I'll, I'll try to do it quickly, but comprehensively. So David, the shepherd, did become, an, he was anointed to be king. He became king. And eventually Saul was killed in battle and David did take the throne and he was king. And then peace came. Um, in, in, the second, in the seventh chapter of Second Samuel, the, the Bible describes a time when David was at rest. And so he started thinking and he said, I should build a house for God because I, I live in a palace and, and God's ark dwells in a tent. That doesn't make sense. He is more glorious than I am, so I should build him a house. And initially, Nathan the prophet said, go do what all is on your heart. But God went to Nathan that night in a dream, and in the dream he said, go tell David, no, you won't build me a house. And that conversation includes the, the statement that God said to David, you won't build me a house, but I will build you a house. He's talking about the kingdom that would follow David, that the lineage of kingdom, the, the, the heritage of the throne would pass on from David, that it would be secure that eventually on that throne or to that throne would come the one who would reign forever. And it, it prophesied to David and promised to David the security of his kingdom. It also included a promise that if, if you or your descendants will sin, I won't remove them like I removed Saul, but I will discipline them and I will correct them. It seems like it wasn't long. We don't know how long after that, but it seems like David took that promise to heart, but also put it to the test. He really put it to the test because he, we know the story, how this, how this began, that he saw something. He wanted someone who was the wife of another man, and he took the wife of another man. And as a king, that, that's the danger. That, that's the danger of power, that there's, there's very little accountability. Who's going to stop you from doing what you want to do unless his heart stopped him? And his heart was weak at that point. He was too much at ease, maybe. But anyway, he, he committed that grievous sin. And then not only that, but he wanted to cover up his sin and wanted to marry the wife of the, the, the soldier that he had sinned against. And so he, he sent Uriah, the husband of Bathsheba, into battle with a note, taking it to Joab the general and saying on the note, put him in the hottest battle and withdraw from him so that he dies. And, and it worked. Uriah was killed. Joab sent word back to David. And, and David w w thought that he had solved his problem. But the Bible, for the first time in David's life, says the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. 
and that because of that, there would be a sword. The sword would never leave his house. There would be disruption in his family and that, um, that from his own house, someone would rise and would seek to take the throne from him. Well, that did happen with Absalom. Through neglect and other sins in the life of, of, of David's family, um, Absalom ends up murdering his brother which it's a, it's a story that would, that would um, make the, some of the stories on the big screen in Hollywood look mild. It's, it's, a, it's a story of, of uh, egregious sin and, and revenge and, and hostility. But Absalom, because he killed his brother, he killed the king's son. And so he had to flee and he was out of the country. And he was away from his father David and away from Israel and was banished from David's presence. And so um, in that time frame, in that it was, I think, three years, the Bible says, Joab noticed that the heart of David is actually longing for Absalom, but he doesn't call him back. So Joab works out a scheme to get David to get Absalom back. And he hires a woman who's, who poses as a widow that goes to David and says, I had two sons, and they quarreled, and one of them killed the other. Now the other one is under the, the penalty of death that the justice that is demanded would take the, the life of my second son, and I would be destitute as a widow. And David decrees, in, in, in hearing the, the story, he decrees, well, I won't let that happen. I won't let them kill your other son so that you're destitute. And then it's revealed to him, because Joab put her up to it, the woman then says, she, she says, this is about you. And this is a verse we probably don't read very often, but I want to refer to it later. So I, I know I'm taking a lot of time to introduce the psalm, but I, I think that it has significance. I think it gives us perspective on what's going through David's mind as he is writing this psalm or as he's as he's um, living this psalm. So in, in the widows, or the, the woman posing as a widow, in her discussion with David, she talks about God. And she says, we, all, we must all die and are like water spilled on the ground that cannot be gathered up again. But God will not take away life. And he devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. Well, I don't want to pretend that Joab's words are inspired. He's doing it as a deception. But just like Caiaphas said of Jesus, it's expedient that one would die for the country and that the whole nation doesn't perish. John says, well, that was actually a prophetic word from a man who was not a prophet who was not a prophet of God, but he still spoke the truth about Jesus. And I think Joab's words are confirmed in other parts of the scripture as a true prophetic word, as a true description of God. And he also is pointing pretty clearly to David's own rebellion against God, to David's own banishment when he had sinned. So he's, he's bringing to mind for David that you also were unqualified to return to God. 
And he devised a way that you can return and not be banished forever. The, the record of that repentance is, is, is so beautifully preserved for us in Psalm 51, where he begins by saying, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your loving kindness. And in that, he says, Create in me a clean heart. He says, um, Blot out my transgressions. He says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. So many beautiful pleas of repentance for God's restoration in his life. And so Joab, who intimately knew what David had done, was reminding him of God's restoration of him back to fellowship with his own creator. And that is what the the woman is reminding David of in, in that conversation. And so David does allow Absalom to come back to the kingdom. So he comes back, but he's not allowed to see the king. He can live in Israel, but he can't come to the palace, and David doesn't go to see him. And that, that condition lasts for two years. But Absalom still wants to see his dad. He wants to be in fellowship with his dad. But he's, he's unrighteous. He's killed his brother. He's under the just um, penalty of, of being banished from the king. And so he... he wants to see the king so badly that he ends up burning the fields of Joab because Joab won't respond to his messages and anyway he does get a very brief encounter with King David but it's very brief and it's not a full reconciliation it's not a full restoration and his his desire for um, power begins to grow he gathers a following he gathers thousands who follow him and he goes away to to Hebron, I think, and declares himself to be king, then as he comes back with really an army, David doesn't even resist when when Absalom's coming back. David doesn't even resist. He flees the palace. And that's the context of this psalm. So long introduction, but hopefully it gives us a little bit context, a little bit more context to see what's going through David's mind as he is fleeing from Absalom, and um, these are the words he says. Psalm number three, if I haven't said that yet, sorry. Psalm number three. A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son. O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. David begins the psalm by declaring how how numerous his opponents are. So many have risen up against him. And it was literally 
a huge number of people who had opposed David. Um, and their voices are the, the instrument of their offense. He's, he's pointing to what they're saying against him. It doesn't, it doesn't focus in on the swords that they carried or the weapons that they were about to do bodily harm to David, though that threat was real as well. But he's focusing on their words. There were so many voices telling half-truths about David. They said, many are saying... Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Well, among the voices that spoke to David, we can be pretty sure is his own voice. And maybe that's the worst voice. It's, it's not as Goliath who defied the armies of the living God, as David said. It's the voices, because Goliath's voice did not resonate with David. He knew better. He knew that, that the God of Israel was stronger than Goliath. That, that Goliath had no power against the God of Israel. But he also knew that the voices that rose against him at this time could condemn him for his own sin. And there would be truth in that. And so they could say... God cannot save you or God will not save you. Those voices that come from the outside might say that. But the voice that comes from the inside that says, I am too bad for God to save. There's no, there's no recovering from this. And, and we probably have a better view of that, of, of our own condition than anyone outside of us because we know our heart. We know that the things that we cover up and we protect others from seeing are still the reality inside of us. Our own jealousy, our own pride, our own greed, our own lust, our own sinfulness that's inside of us. And David hadn't even kept it inside of himself. It had manifested in what he did, and it was publicly known. So the, the voices that spoke against him told the truth about God's just punishment for sin. It's not a lie to say that God hates sin. It's not a lie to say that we deserve to be punished by him. And so when we hear that and when we feel it in our soul, it requires that we know the truth about God. See, that's the truth about us but it's only half the picture. They were saying there's no salvation for him in God. And that's not the character of God. See, we think that in our corrupt and fallen nature, we think that, and the world thinks that. But God's grace is displayed throughout all of history from the beginning of time when, when our first parents committed a sin. What did he say to them? He decreed the consequences of their sin, but he also decreed the remedy for their sin. In the garden, he said, the seed of the woman 
that, that will be born to you will rise up and crush the seed, will crush your enemy, will crush the snake, the one who opposed you, the one who is the, um, bent on your destruction, who wants to destroy what I've created. So that promise, it started already in the garden, that God graciously offers us a remedy for our sin. So the, the challenge for us is to believe in the character of God, that he desires to save us, that he's willing to save us, and that he is able to save us. So in opposing the half-truths, um, David is he's, he's countering the, the voices, and, and among those would be even the, the voice that's recorded of, of um, Shimei, who as he's, as he's running away from Absalom, Shimei says, get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you the house of Saul in whose place you have reigned. The Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is upon you, for you are a man of blood. His, his defense against that was not, oh, but, but I'm actually better than that. I'm actually a good man. See, when we, when we try to respond to accusations from our heart or from others, with that, we're, we're on shaky ground. We don't really have any ground to stand on to say, well, no, I'm actually a good person. We, we should probably stop that, that counterattack immediately and rethink it. That's not David's response. He says, um, in his response, he, he says, You, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord. He answered me from his holy hill. You, O Lord, are a shield about me. I am defenseless. I'm defenseless against my physical enemies. I'm defenseless against the accusations of my enemies. I'm defenseless against my own heart's conviction. But you, O oh Lord, are a shield about me. Our only confidence is the faithfulness of God. So when someone asks me, and I, I borrow this from Alistair Begg, who, who said, if we respond to a question about whether we should go to heaven in the first person, he says it, which means we begin our, our response with I, we need to stop and start over. In other words, why should God let you into heaven? Well, I believe in Jesus. I have um, accepted him as my Savior. I have done this. It's really still the wrong way to say it. Why should I let you into heaven? Because he died for me. Because he is my savior. Because he is the shield about me. He is my glory. There's no glory in myself. My glory is fading. David knew that. He was already beginning to age. He knew the, the ravages of his mortal body that of course he's going to die. 
What, why would you build on that glory? Why would, you, why would you think that this is what it's all about? He is my glory. He's the one who lifts my head. The, the discussion we had in Sunday school this morning was, was so enlightening because I didn't lead it. It was, it was uh, uh, Ken led it and so many good comments about this psalm came out. And one of those was that as, as God is lifting our head, he's close, he's touching us. He's not distant. He comes to us and lifts us up. And David needed that. I cried to the Lord and he answered me. Well, one of those cries is, is clearly when, he, when Nathan came to him and told him the story of the sheep and, and said there was a, we, we know the parable, there was a man that had only one sheep and there was a rich man and when the visitor came to the rich man, he took the one sheep, the one little ewe lamb from the other and slaughtered it so that he could serve his guest. And David was so angry, he said, that man should die. And Nathan said, you are the man. And then the Bible simply says, David's answer was, I have sinned against the Lord. Well, in, in Samuel chapter 12, that's the record of David's words. In Psalm 51 is the expanded record of David's word. I cried out to the Lord, and he heard me from his holy hill. Does the Lord love most of all to stamp out sin by killing the sinner? Or does he love most of all to redeem the sinner, to forgive the sinner? The promise of God is that he will cast our sins into the sea. That's in Micah 7:19. He will cast our sins into the sea. And he promises in, in Hebrew 10, 17, it's also quoting from the Old Testament, but it says, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. So that the things that we wrestle to forget, God, by a willful act on his part, refuses to remember. Think about that the next time something that you have repented of and God has forgiven you of comes back to plague you. And think about what the Bible says and rebuke the accuser with those words. God willfully refuses to remember this. How dare I bring it back up? I, I know that's not easy. <laughs> I personally know that's not easy. I think all of us know that's not easy. Our sins and our regrets come back to us. He, he even points out the, probably the epitome of confidence in God. He says, I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. I love that the Psalms speak so specifically to my difficulties. And I've noticed this recently that as I look through the Psalms, there are so many times um, the psalmist refers to a sleepless night or the difficulty of sleep. But, but in this case, David is pointing out the ease of his sleep. There, there are so many times that 
when everyone else is asleep and I'm awakened in the night, either with the, the pains of my mortal body or with the regrets of the past or the worries of today or the worries of tomorrow and the, the failures that, that I, I still am musing over, that I have to turn to the Psalms. That the best remedy for that is the truth of God, is the truth of God's character, that I need to re-examine, I need to remind myself of things that might be fading. I need to turn the camera. See, it, when, when I'm thinking about my sin or my regrets or my anxieties about tomorrow, I have the camera pointed at me. I'm looking at me and my problems. But I need to turn that around and point it to God and point it to his character, the, the consistent, faithful, unending character of God, the heart that loves to redeem, the heart that loves to forgive, the heart that by his own payment paid for my sin. I, I need to do that regularly. Um, someone said we have to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. That's the gospel. That I am unworthy, yet he has called me to himself, and he, by his just sacrifice, has made me worthy. As David continues on, he says, I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me. He knew that against thousands, God was always the majority. That if he was with God, it wouldn't matter how many. The numbers that were against him did not matter because God was on his side. And he, and he asks the Lord again, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies in the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. I think again, he's, he's focusing on the instrument of words that, that the mouth of his enemies was the most offensive part. What they were saying about him, what they were saying about God was the most offensive part. So he's asking God to silence his enemies. He doesn't ask them, he doesn't say, at least in this part, to uh, break their arms so they can't wield a sword. He's saying break their mouths so they can't speak against you and they can't speak against your anointed. <clears throat> In the end, um, David concludes with this final word. He says, salvation belongs to the Lord. You might speak against me. You might say this about me. You might be right to say this about me, about my sin. You might be right to say that I am, I am deserving of punishment. But God has the last word. You do not have the last word. My heart does not have the last word. John says in, in his first letter, if my heart condemns me, if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. God has the last word. 
He's the author and finisher of our faith. He starts it. He finishes it. It is from him both to will and to do his good pleasure. The sovereign hand of God is the source and the confidence of your salvation. Yet he devises means that his banished one will not remain an outcast. In this, we have a picture where a father wants to save and be reconciled to a son that is estranged from him by sin. Justice demands punishment of the son. Mercy and love longs for reconciliation. David was unable to bridge that gap. Absalom would die apart from David. They were not reconciled. David would weep over the death of Absalom. But there is one that comes that also fills the pattern of these verses that many voices spoke against. Many rose up against him. That God needed to be a shield about him. That people taunted him and said, God can't save you. That willingly went to the cross. That willingly became the only remedy for the dilemma of justice and mercy. That we, that you and I, that Mark, who stood under the judgment of God, under the just judgment of God, banished from him, could be reconciled by a payment made not by him, but by the only perfect sacrifice. Ephesians chapter 2, one of my favorite passages in Scripture. Just some excerpts from that. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and mind, and were by nature the children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him. And then later on in that same passage, you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. We were not even in the covenant of Israel, let alone in communion with our maker. But this is what he did. We were having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, the Gentiles, have been brought near by the blood of Christ that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, the Gentiles and the Jews, one body now, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body, the cross the problem David couldn't fix God could 
And he did. And when the enemy comes to us with the temptations, with, with the accusations, our defense is sure because we rest in the words and work of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we ask that you would make this message sink into our hearts, that we would understand the immense grace that you have poured out on us, that though we were estranged from you, though we were banished from your presence, you have devised means that your banished would not be an outcast forever. Oh God, we thank you. And we pray that any heart here that has doubts about whether you are able or willing to save them would be able to, to see from your word, from your promises, from your character, from your love, that you are both willing and able to save to the uttermost. Are any of us worse than the examples of Scripture? Maybe we are. Maybe we are. Maybe our heart is worse than David's heart. But your heart is greater than that. Your love for us is greater than our sin. So we, we ask, Lord, that you would open up the hearts of anyone here who has not yet received you and convince them by your Spirit to embrace the love that is offered to them. In Jesus' name, amen.